Hello and welcome to Going Off Track. Hello and welcome. Good evening. To- Actually, I don't know where you are. Let's just say hi. 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 This is Jonah, Brad, and Stephen. Today is a very exciting day for Going Off Track because uh, we've talked about this gentleman for a long time and Jonah, you got him. I did. Well, this is mostly thanks to Vanessa Burt, uh, who was like, hey, Tim Barry's coming to town. Do you want to have him on the podcast? And I was like, yes, definitely I would. And then at the end of the podcast, he just drops this little number of, yeah, I don't do interviews anymore. Yeah, he doesn't really do interviews. Um, We're like, okay, awesome, dude. Uh, if you, And then the best thing was after the podcast, he was leaving and someone who was recording here at Rubber Tracks went, was that Tim Barry? <laughs> I went and chased him out of the studio to go say hi. I forgot about that. Yeah. Super cool guy. So Tim obviously was a singer for Avail for mm-hmm. a very long time. An amazing band that you should listen avail to. Avail yourself of. You ah, very nice. Of. Well played, Brad Goop. <laughs> for about the last 10 years, he's been playing solo music, mm-hmm. kind of folky stuff. And it's great. If you have ever have the chance to see him live, it's like storytelling plus music. And he's... Just an incredibly charismatic performer. His latest record is called 40 Miler, but all of his solo stuff is great. Mm-hmm. So check out his solo stuff. Check out Avail. And he's just... And if you go fu- to Richmond, go say hi. <laughs> yeah, he's just like a legit fucking Southern dude who's mm-hmm. really cool, really friendly, and knows more about life than all of us put together, I would imagine. <laughs> or like at least how to like skin something. <laughs> <laughs> Which could be important. Which could be important. Mm-hmm. Tim Barry, ladies and gentlemen. I had a horrible experience in Newark the other day. Oh, yeah? What happened? Never in my life has this ever happened. Long story short, I was sitting at the gate. The flight left. I didn't ever hear them call my flight. Because no you know how the A terminal is just like, um, it's tiny? Yeah, totally. And it's like everything's lumped on top of each other. It's like gate 24A <laughs> through Z, all in the same thing. And truthfully, when I walked up, the, all right, well, really, they delayed the flight three times. And then they retracted the delays. Okay. So they're announcing all So the all whole this time stuff? I'm like, okay, the flight that's supposed to leave at 150 is now leaving at 245. And then they retracted it. But the lady's microphone wasn't on. It was coming out of her little booth. Okay. But it wasn't coming out. And, and no offense to uh, people who speak different languages. But she, when I said, can you say my name? She said, Timothy Barre. And I was like, so you were paging me. Yeah. Uh, I guess I just didn't hear it. Yeah, I thought you that know? was a French guy. It was really, it's never wow. happened to me. It was, it was a bummer. Oh, man. Such is life. It uh, doesn't matter. I fly all the time, and I, I miss 50% of my flights. Not, that, that apparently was my own fault, but <laughs> she yelled at me. I actually <laughs> cried. <laughs> You know when you're really upset? Mr. Barre, you need to listen. (laughs) That's what she said. What is wrong with you? That's what she said. Bless her heart. You go to that Chili's and you think about what you did. Well, it's Newark, so I have to go back out to security. Well, are you hungry or are you not? I did go out back through security. (laughs) Every day I try to quit smoking, but that's the moment that I was like, you know what? I got six more hours to wait. I'm actually going to have a cigarette now. We were talking about Cleveland right before we started taping, and I had this weird flashback to hanging out with you guys in Cleveland when you played with the draft. Oh, the last show? It was recently? No, it was a long time oh, an ago. An old Avail show. An Avail show. Oh, okay, because I was just up there with the draft. Oh, last yeah, year. that's right. Yeah. Yes. And that guy, 
was doing all the yo-yo tricks. Oh, his name stage. is Steve Brown. Yes, Steve Brown, who is a friend of mine too. I haven't talked to him in a long time, but that was one of the most incredible things I ever saw with my two eyes. Oh, now I remember. He came on stage and did it. Oh, did he? Oh, did, no, maybe we that's were, the I think first we night. Were, I saw him do it like in the backstage area. Okay, yeah, there's a there is a timeline here. That would have been the first <laughs> first day that I met Steve Brown, three-time world champion yo-yoer. Yes. Actually, we had met on Warp Tour before that because they were doing yo-yo on Warp Tour. And um for those of you who have never seen like a real person doing yo-yoing, this is not a joke. We are not making light of the this man and other people's talents but that's when i really was engaged when we were in the dressing room at the grog shop that night yes and then the next time we rolled through we invited him on stage for the changeovers Uh, and we probably just shouldn't have played after it i mean the crowd was so fixated and the tricks that he pulls off are unbelievable. And if I have Steve Steve's story correct, he's three time world champion until they asked him to stop that is competing correct. I've heard because that as well. he's so good that no one can beat him. I encourage y'all to look him up yes. on the interwebs. Check out Steve Brown. Awesome <laughs> dude. I bet he can just shoot the moon. Sure enough. That's a really hard trick. You said that to a yo yo guy. I interviewed people at Duncan once, and all, this guy's like, You can do a demo for you. And I'm like, Can you just shoot the moon? And he went, Oh, why would you? Oh. What is that? It's one where you have to, like, you flip it down and then you literally flip it over your head and spin it back. The demo I'm doing on the podcast <laughs> is being lost on it's, the. It's incredibly impressive. It's really cool. <laughs> um, uh, Railhead final show in Delaware. That's the first time <clears throat> I saw a veil, and I bought Satiate from you guys on cassette and it was this incredible incredible show my buddy of mine who was friends with darren was like you have to come to this show railhead on is finishing and i went okay and possibly the only time i've ever played in delaware really i can't think of another time we had and we were very close with with that community and asked to come up and do the final show. I, I have a picture-perfect memory for shows. I remember the venue being dark, rented out. And if I remember correctly, were people dressed funny? People were dressed all in black because Railhead said, this is our last show, so it's a funeral show. They so were mourning. people to be in mourning. And there was a, a bake sale, and people were uh, selling all kinds of baked goods and things. And, and my... Buddy Bert thought it funny to sell cookies, but he actually used real milk, so he felt bad since there was a lot of vegan things. So we just put <laughs> cruelty cookies on it in case you wanted to buy some. And, and people showed up with bags of Murder King. Yeah, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People, that was my first introduction to you and to a veil. And right it was on. just ah, just that completely blew me away. Yeah, it's it's it's. Um, I'm not a <clears throat> very nostalgic person. I noticed that um, the technology that's presented to us these days um, sort of induces people to do a lot of reflecting and post on their pasts and like, you know, putting up old pictures and videos and flyers. I'm a very forward thinking person. But this morning I was walking around New York City. I like to walk whenever I can. And as I started to do the math and I'm like, the first time I came here was to play CBGBs in 1989. And then I started doing the math. And I was like, I can't believe that I'm still publicly playing music and that some people care. I mean, I would have written all the songs that I've written, no matter what. They just, but I feel real lucky that I still get to do this railhead. I mean, what year was that? That was a long time ago. I think it was 92. 
I remember the first time I came to New York City, we had a friend from Virginia that moved to New York and somehow, and you know, we were all just like kids and somehow she finagled us like a Monday or Tuesday night show with some random bands and we thought it was the biggest deal in the world and we borrowed a van and we were driving up and I remember as we pulled in, you know, I don't know if everybody who's been in New York recalls their first experiences here, but it started looking like a movie set. You know, like, I've seen this a million times on the TV. This is actually what it looks like. And I was so nervous and scared and overwhelmed by the traffic, the horns, the people, the ant colony. You know, like, it was just, <laughs> I put a pillow over my head and laid down in the van. And then the guys started screaming and and pointing, and I, I popped up, and, and um, Vernon Reed from Living Color was walking down the street. Who's I think it's Vernon Reed, the guitar yes, player, yeah, yeah. one Reed, of the best sure. guitar players. And, and at the time, they were on heavy rotation mm-hmm. on music television, and I just couldn't believe where I was. And the only other thing that I really remember about the show, I mean, I remember the show clearly that um, one of the guys from Bad Trip was there, and that was it, and maybe our friend and maybe one other person and a heroin addict woman <laughs> who when I finished playing back then I played drums and when I finished playing she said you play drums like an animal <laughs> that's all I really remember about the, <laughs> our first time in New York that's incredible I did play drums like an animal though you're from, you're from Reston right yeah I grew up in northern Virginia and have been living in Richmond essentially since that show like 89 yeah. I'm from Springfield yeah yeah. So the whole Fairfax County region. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, for those of you who are listening to, who don't know anything about the geography and population density of the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, Northern Virginia. <clears throat> Good where, say Commonwealth. It's not a state. It's the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Um, Northern Virginia, where I grew up, is Un, an unbelievable maze of suburban sprawl <laughs> compared to when I lived there. I just went, my mom still lives up there, and I went up there for uh, the holidays to, to check in. I always almost get lost. I mean, I can't find a house that we grew up in. And, um, you know, uh, real poverty and extreme wealth, it's just sort of representative of, you know, the rest of the country, but it's so different from central Virginia where, where I live. I mean, it's so polar opposite. It's almost like New Jersey, like the coastal part of New Jersey, the turnpike land. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the north starts just north of Fredericksburg, Virginia, and it ends after Boston. <laughs> yeah. And it's all mm-hmm. the same mess. Not in a bad way, but not something that I'm comfortable with oh, it's- living in. Yeah, yeah. Jersey's very much like that. We have these pockets of affluence and then five minutes away, you know, it's just the complete opposite. It's it's insane. Someone's got to serve the wealthy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> and what, so wait, did you, did you go to school in Richmond or you just moved down there? No, we moved down there. Um, no, 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 we didn't, I didn't go to school. Um, no, I didn't go to high school there in Richmond. Right. No, mm-hmm. we moved down there and just started hustling. Um, all of us, pretty much. I can't think of anybody. Well, Ed Trask grew up in Loudon, Percival, up that way. But no, we all just took over this house. My dad was the only one on the lease. There was about 14 people in it. Um, and Avail sort of popped out of that. And then um, 
Yeah, it never stopped. It's actually like, I don't really, again, I don't, I, I'm a forward thinking person, but it is fun to reflect sometimes. I kind of like, I can't believe the stuff we pulled off and the help that we got from so many people. And this isn't just a veil. This is like we as a group of people, like the community of folks that we have in Richmond, like, and the accomplishments that many of the people that we are surrounded by have, have made, um, the impacts that they've made on the world, you know, from journalists to, um, to writers, to other musician peers, to artists. It's really neat. Like, you know, thinking about how successful personally, not financially, but personally, a lot of people that we came up with, um, have become, and sadly, you know, how many people we've lost and the folks that are locked up and stuff. It's just, it's really interesting looking back on it. It's a lot of stories. And I think the most interesting part of it is um, noting that there was no technology available. What we're doing right now with the podcast, it's, it's absurd. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, you, this didn't exist. Mm -hmm. One of the guys on the tour that I'm on right now, I'm on tour with a band called The Hold Steady, and I'm in their bus with them, and I'm getting to know, um, you know, some of the crew members I already knew, but uh, there's a crew member named Joe who uh, tours with bands like Saves the Day and um, The Hold Steady, of course, and a lot of, you know, like, does warp Tour and stuff like that. He's not young. He's 27, 28 tomorrow, actually. is his birthday tomorrow, February 7th. And um, just ranting with him about, like, he'll just ask a question. I'll be like, oh, yeah, the first time I went to Europe was 1994. I set it up with a fax machine that Lookout Records sent me because there's no way financially that we could afford to make that many long-distance phone calls. So Lookout donated us a fax machine, and I started faxing squats and, you know, people like that. And we set up, I set up a five-week tour using a fax machine. And then we get over there, and he says, well, how do you get directions? And I say, some of them just say, go to town, look for punks. <laughs> or or look for a squat symbol spray painted on a wall, and if there's an arrow, follow that until you find the squat. Or look at anyone who looks like they're involved in the punk community and ask them to show you where the squat is, and they usually just jump in the van and will direct you. I mean, like, that's how we got around. It's crazy to think back on how we used to use, without uh, having the money to make long-distance phone calls to set up tours, we would depend on bike couriers in Washington, D.C. to donate to us corporate um, calling card numbers that their employees received um, to make phone calls long distance billed to the corporation or we would go to um, Radio Shack and there was a little tiny device smaller than than a cell phone these days, maybe like the size of an old flip phone where you could manipulate the, um, it basically made a sound and you could manipulate um, the device so that it duplicated the sound of dimes, nickels, and quarters, which is how payphones recognized, um, you know, the call that you were making. And so I would go up by Community Pride Grocery Store at the corner on Main Street next to the ABC store, the liquor store, and sit on a payphone with my notepad and use a, a dialer. I would call a Brooklyn number and it'd say, please deposit $2.25. And i go, ching. Ching, 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 and the call would connect. And the people, people, the rumors were that if you did the sounds too consistently, that 
it would know that it was <laughs> it was fake. So you would always go jing, 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 quarter, and you'd also jiggle change. And then occasionally an operator would pop on and say, please deposit more, and your heart would stop. And you'd think, wow, they know where I'm at. <laughs> it's fun. I really, I don't know, maybe people who listen to this podcast, maybe there's a proactive um, videographer or, or writer who would like to take it up, but... I would like to throw out a proposal that someone one day interviews um, people of my age demographic who fell into this sort of lifestyle, whether it be art, music, uh, book tours or whatever, where you grew up without the technology and then it was given to you. So we have learned to not take it for granted. We see these things as a, as a privilege. Um, and please do an interview. I mean, everybody had their little hustles. And today I think it's fascinating that people within our lifetime have figured out all these other ways of pulling things off. You know, when I was walking here, I bumped into about 100 people because they weren't looking where they were walking. They were all looking at their Google Maps, and I have an iPhone. But I just know if I'm at the Williamsburg Music Hall, the river is behind me, the other river, which (laughs) I, what is it, the BQE? Mm -hmm. I call that the river because to me, everything is based on the geography of some current that goes through. So I'm just like, I'll just walk to the other river on 6th Street Mm -hmm. until I hit Union. I knocked over everyone. You don't need those maps. Follow the sun. <laughs> you know what? That's so funny. This is exactly something I wanted to ask you because I was thinking about this on the way here. I was like, you know, I remember at that show we we're talking about you had just gotten like a digital camera mm. and the screen on it was like this big. It was like small, really small because it was like new technology. And I was like, it's so weird. Tim has a digital camera, like not in like an insulting way, but in a way like you seem very in touch with kind of the world and like kind of outdoors. So, I mean, do you think in some ways this technology is kind of alienating or like because I feel like you can get so wrapped up in the screen you're not paying attention to what's going on do you think that's a problem as well I don't I mean those I mean, are maybe not for you per, personally but personal. for society I don't I, I can't analyze it as a whole you know I think again like the the gifts that we've been given by really talented people you know these little pieces of art that we can put in our pockets now are certainly so useful it's um, an empowering you can't go wrong. I mean, there's so many benefits to them. I mean, personally, I have a MacBook Pro. I don't use the computer much, though. I use it for music. I do everything on my own. I spend very little time on it. I have an iPhone. Um, and I also have taught myself when to stop. Right. I also am maybe um, different than a lot of people where, like, I don't enjoy movies. I, I respect the art. I don't enjoy television. I don't enjoy reading people's comments on YouTube videos. I don't enjoy um, people's rants on Facebook. So it's not that I dislike anybody who's interested in that stuff. It's just not something that I get excited about. But on the flip, I really love Instagram. I I love it. I think it's great. It when I'm on tour, say I'm in a club in the United Kingdom and I'm lonely and I'm by myself and I get online and I can look to see what my friends at home are doing, what the families are up to, um, and also see that my musical peers are doing exactly the same thing that I'm doing. It it really it helps you know me keep going and whatnot. So. 
I really don't have an opinion on technology except for the fact that I don't think anybody should let it become your brain. You know, when you mm-hmm. can't think anymore because, you know, you don't do real research because you just look it up on Wikipedia, I think that's damaging. I, you know, the newspapers that I read are fact-checked by lawyers. Um, there's a process. When mm-hmm. someone tells me something that they've read and it sounds crazy, it's usually turns out to not be realistic, not true, yeah, fabricated, some- not complete story. So I think, you know, it's just so, so complex, so complex. But I got to say, like going back to maps real quick, like uh-huh. I was on tour with a, I had a backup band <clears throat> years ago. And this is when MapQuest popped, you know, like when most directions were done by MapQuest. We were leaving Chicago and we had a, I think we were leaving Chicago, but we had an off day in um, Bloomington, Indiana. And so I bought us all a hotel room, you know, we always get hotels on off days. So I got two rooms, a red roof in. I can't remember what highway, let's just say it's 65. And I was just like, <laughs> they called, we had, you know, cell phones. They called and they were like, you know, flip phones before the mm-hmm. the phones that we have now. And they called and they were like, we can't figure out how to get there. I was like, just take exit seven off of 65. It's on the left. It's a red roof in there. Like, we don't know how to get to 65. I'm like, look on a map. They couldn't read a map. You know, they were just five or six years younger than me, but they couldn't actually read a map. They could only use MapQuest. And that's perplexing. I mean, if there's an emergency, if something happens and you can't get from point A to point B with that technology, I mean, people, I don't know. It's just. I don't it's think a lot of those people would know where to go buy a map. You know, well, now we, they're we, not too available. I just spent six months on the road. It took me the first three weeks to find a TA or a Flying J or a, or a Loves that had a map. Mm-hmm. Poor Rand McNally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you said the article I read about the available reunion shows this summer was not reliable. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Let me just, for the record, <laughs> there will never be, an, well, if there's an Avail reunion show, I won't be participating. But um, it's funny. We do get, you know, I, because I've always been contact for everything, I, I still get people writing. And I'm surprised by some of the people who request our presence at their big event because clearly they don't understand the history of the old band that I was in. If for some reason we were going to do a show which which is not planned and I don't want to do we wouldn't have somebody else do it we would create it right we wouldn't hire someone or go to something that's already being built we did everything from the bottom up on our own <laughs> why would we do that now <laughs> you know like I don't think they knew. Not realistic. So don't believe everything you read in the internet. I, I actually didn't read that. I thought that was I a do. cool segue. I do see it here and there. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a e-cigarette company. Of course, these are very popular now. Yes. That has a storefront in Richmond's tiny little commercial district, retail district called Carytown. And the e-cigarette company is called Avail. And it's the logo is in black letters in white with a black background and... The logo looks like an Avail album cover. It's unbelievable. I'm waiting for somebody to go there and paint the Dixie guy on the window. <laughs> I can't believe they've done it. And then Bo, my oldest best friend since kindergarten, who is the maniac dancer in Avail, just sent me a text the other day with a link to a, um, it's like a Euro-style techno band called Avail that just released a record. So that's, that's our new record. <laughs> 
And uh, I think it's hopefully that band will do the jingle for the Avail e-cigarettes in Carytown, mm-hmm. and we'll all tie it all together. Sounds like <laughs> a great idea. What what's Bo up to? I've wondered what what happened to that guy. He's doing great. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Um, he's terrific. He's still uh, nuts, but in like a mellow way. He's still absolutely one of my best friends in the world. If he needed something, I'm always there. Vice versa. Um, he's got two beautiful kids, crew and Rory. He has a terrific wife named Sarah, and they have a great life. They're both bartenders. They stagger their shifts. Um, they got a great little house that they bought in a pretty rough neighborhood a long time ago for very little money, and now the neighborhood's pretty nice, and it's a, it's a great place. I'm lucky that you know all these people are still in my life. I love him to death, and uh, he's doing great. That's no awesome. music, but still punk as hell. If you ask Bo, I wish Bo was here right now. He'd be like, you'd be, you could say, what do you think about Tim's music? And he would look me dead in the eyes and he'd say, I hate it. <laughs> I hate that music. And I think, I think that's what I love about Bo is his honesty. And uh, he knows that I love him. And it doesn't matter if you like some music. I also know that if you make music, you can't expect everyone to like it. And I just, I think it's hilarious. People at the bar will be like, are you going to go see Tim play tonight? And he's like, why am I going to go see Tim? Like, he's awful. <laughs> so I love it. <laughs> I mentioned him in a song on my last record. The song is called 40 Miler. And I don't even think he's ever heard it. He does, probably doesn't even know. But I say, damn, Bo, we, we both should have quit at age 24. <laughs> in fact, I got to let him know that. <laughs> what was the uh, the track you had, you know, to your solo work from Avail, like what inspired you to like? Did you do you think you shifted it up musically a lot in your songwriting style, or is it had you played? Was Avail still active when you yeah. were doing solo stuff? What was the chronology? I guess right. this is a, a thing about the reflection thing that I just put together the other day. Um, that I have been playing solo shows publicly. Like advertised for ten years. Okay, as of uh, January fourteenth, uh, that was my ten year. Um, uh, a lot of people might not know. Well, most people wouldn't. A lot of people don't even know who Avail is these days. To, I mean, to be honest, and uh, that's not offensive in any way. I think it's actually pretty cool that uh, you know people move forward as well. But uh, many Avail songs were written on acoustic guitars. And then transferred over into like a full band um, format. Uh, the guitar player wrote a lot of acoustic songs with like melodies and lyrics. And those would be presented. I did the same thing. We wrote collaboratively all of the time. Um, and I always write and always have. And a lot of the songs that I write weren't stuff that could really work for a veil anyway. And I never intended to like put out, you know, a folk rock record or anything. But <clears throat> I always, all through Avail, all I listened to was Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly. And, you know, if you really analyze the lyrics, I'm pulling lines from those folk singers, just like folk singers did. They took lines and then they put them in their songs and created songs out. I mean, it's countless how many songs lines that I took from the old folk singers during that entire period. So I had a lot of songs written, um, you know, 15 years ago. And basically, truthfully, what happened with what I do now with acoustic folk rock kind of music is 
I've always been close to like some left-leaning, radical left-leaning communities. And um, down in Asheville, North Carolina, there was a leftist magazine, like an environmental magazine that I was that I always read. And they were short on money, and they asked if Avail would come down and do a benefit, and Avail wasn't available. And I thought, you know, I'll just go down there and play some of these folk songs that I have, and maybe, you know, 50 people will come and they'll get a little bit of money. And that's what I did. And, you know, it was about a month in advance, and that was the show 10 years ago that I had, and I started rehearsing, and I realized, I mean, I, I was awful. Like, what I realized when I was rehearsing for it was, like, how bad I was. And then I got down there, and I played, and I was awful. And I was so scared, but so energized by my failure that I felt like I needed to keep doing it to see if I could pull it off in a way that I thought was more presentable. And I think what I realized is like, I was trying to do, it wasn't intentional. It's just all, everything in my life just happens. I was doing folk music, but in in a contemporary way. So I had to like figure out like with writing songs, like how do I do this publicly? Like, so then I went from there and I was just addicted to the fear. I just kept taking shows and kept playing in front of different people with the idea of like this fear keeps me focused it's it's all and to, to, to the end point which is playing the show it's almost like if you sign up to do a marathon and you spend all of your time in preparation every day i have to get up and go running every day i got to get a little further until I can do this marathon. And so for every show I took, it was like a mini marathon. I got to get better at this. I got to get better. And then when you go on stage, it's like, okay, I'm a little tighter. I've never been a good guitar player, but I'm like, okay, the guitar is still not good, but like the presentation's getting better. And like, okay, now I'm playing in a bar for 50 people, 20 are watching, the rest are talking as loud as they can. And then my style becomes more abrasive. This is why I'm like so loud and confrontational is like I learned how to play in front of people who didn't care that I was there, you know, of the Avail fans left. So I'm starting over and I just did this all the time. That's it. Avail trickled out, went away, just, you know, didn't break up, didn't do a big breakup show. The band just stopped and I just kept on trucking. Just And the form, formula for the music was exactly the same. I just wrote by feel. The other day, on the, I live on a corner house, and all the kids in the neighborhood play in my yard. And they're all getting a little older. They come over, and they, we have chickens, and they, we have all these animals, so they all come over, and they play with the chickens, and they love coming to our house. And um, they're getting older. So they looked me up on the Internet. And... <laughs> <laughs> I cuss a lot, right? And one of the kids was like, you say a lot of words that you're not supposed to, you know? Like, and I'm like, well, that's how grown-ups talk sometimes. And I had to say to the, the, the young girl, I was like, and here's the other thing, and this is, this is the point. I never thought anyone would hear these songs, you know? So, like, here I am playing these shows. No one cares, and I'm writing all these songs that I would be writing no matter what. And then I, I released some in Germany because I was going to go over and try to learn to get better by going overseas. So, and then I record another record, which is, well, that was a demo. Then the next record is Rivana Junction. I didn't think 
anyone would care. I put it out on like a really small record label and that record has sold so many. Like, and here I am like cussing and not very good. And, you know, I don't know how I ended up doing what I'm doing. You know, it just never stopped. And then I come home from these trips and I'd work, like work, 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 cutting wood and loading trucks and just, you know, and then just I get home from a tour and get it, get work and build stages for a few months and then go back on tour and come back and get a job cutting wood, building sets, you know, like doing stage lighting, something. And then I go on tour. And then one day I was like, wait a second. I've been on tour a lot. I haven't worked all year, you know? And it's not about the income as much as, like, the reality of, like, holy crap, that was an accident. Like, how did this... And now I'm on a tour bus with the Hold Steady, and I get to tour with my favorite bands, and every trip I meet new people that I can't believe I'd never met before because we're all so connected, and that means crew to, like, kids on the streets to to staff at shows and... I feel so lucky. I really, I just can't believe my life the way it's turned out. Dude, I played a show at Twisters when I was in college. I went to JMU. Oh, yeah? And you were standing outside. And I remember we were all like, oh, fuck, it's Tim from a fail. Holy shit. Oh, all ridiculous. freaking out. And if also, you said hello, it would have just been like, oh, let's go get a beer. <laughs> oh, well, and Tom, Thomas from Strike Anywhere yeah, was there Thomas as well. Yeah. And I remember we were just like, well, it turned out there was some kind of, I don't know, boycott against Twisters that night. because we were, <gasps> Oh. <yeah. laughs> so nobody came in and we were like, they're not coming in. Oh, crap. Oh, I'm sorry. Your no. band that was your band playing. Oh man. <laughs> the house this is that was in the early nineties. Yeah, it was in the yeah, early, yeah. You know, the house that we all lived in, there was again, there was about fourteen of us at that point in that house. And there was you know, it was an eclectic group of people, including street kids. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's like kids from like um different neighborhoods that would hang out at our house and and um we all went down for a show there and uh the non white kids were not allowed into the show and that really offended them Mm. and it really offended everyone i mean that's a really i mean richmond's still segregated richmond's Mm -hmm. still got inherent and long-term racism that's gonna you gotta fight out um i'm so sorry it was your band we did so sorry we didn't know we wouldn't have played (laughs) well you know it kind of sprang up and it was a it was a temporary formal boycott to uh just go hey look by the way, we can bankrupt your venue, like, with the quickness. Mm. And sadly, one of those kids, um, I mean, he was a kid at the time. He was about 16, 17. Sadly, uh, I bumped into one of one of that crew of people that used to hang out at the house. The other day, I was uh, going to grab something at 7-Eleven, and I w- walked up, and this real rough-looking homeless dude looked up at me with him messed up looking eyes and went, and went Tim and I looked and it was one of those those kids I'm not going to say his name but uh oh, I felt I, I felt really upset uh, I was really upset because uh oh, it makes me feel like crying I was really upset because <clears throat> because I feel blessed because I don't take the good things that have happened in my life for granted and it's a real difficult thing to see up here and someone you came up with um, with zero opportunities, even, um, and, and for that person to not have even a strong enough family or friend circle to look after them. Mm-hmm. You know, if I got put on the streets, 
I could stay at my mom's. I got a a lot of friends that I could stay with. And it it really broke my heart. And I was like, you know, where are you staying at? And he was like, oh, this parking deck. And I, I was like, where is your family now? And he's like, you know, I guess he'd lived with his grandparents. They had passed. And he said he had a uncle that he would stay with when occasionally it really broke my heart, really broke my heart anyway. But he was a part of that boycott, like uh, how it all started. Wow. That's, that's a memory. <laughs> What's it like having chickens? <laughs> What's it like having yeah. chickens? <laughs> Do you like it? It's just what it is. Yeah. Have you, did you have them grown up and stuff? No, no, we had gardens, but, um, no, I just always kind of done whatever I wanted. The city, Said we couldn't have chickens, so I got chickens. <laughs> or do they let you have a rooster? That's the no roosters. No, yeah. you do that for a reason. <laughs> I mean, all my neighbors have chickens too. Basically, when we got chickens, um, I, you know, like I, I, I just, I, I truly believe that food doesn't come from the grocery store. So w- when I get hungry, I go in the yard and grab some eggs and some spinach and make an omelet. You know, it, it's. Um, it's kind of absurd to think that food, you know, food does not come from the grocery store. So I just go to the root of it and that's have gardens and chickens and stuff like that. Um, and because it can be an issue with some of the neighbors, I just, my my birds lay a lot. They're healthy. They eat really good. So they lay a lot and they have good eggs. So my neighbors get a dozen eggs a week, almost all of them. I mean, I drop them off on rotation. And so we've never gotten any complaints. All my neighbors have like all four houses on my block have chickens anyway. Sort of normal where yeah. I'm from. You know, like, I mean, shoot, when I lived in Oregon Hill, I don't know if you've ever been in the neighborhood in Oregon Hill in Richmond. The first time I walked in there, there, there was two goats. I mean, they're row houses. Um, yeah, so it's, it's not too uncommon. One of my chickens died when I was gone, though. I don't keep them as pets, but I really Do you care. name them? Well, no. these were given to me. Okay. They, they had names. Her name was Jolene. Um, some mm-hmm. friends of mine that went on a cross-country trip dumped their chickens on me and just because they knew I'd take great care of them. And with that said, I feel really bad that one of them just died because I, you know, I take really good care of my animals. But It wasn't chicken-on-chicken chicken crime. It was probably no. a nice natural. No, I, I don't know <clears throat> what happened to the bird. Um, this uh, is also in Richmond, yeah. Yeah. See, that's such a fascinating town to me. Yeah, and you know, like where I live, if you know, I live on the South Bank. You you know, if you're from Richmond, you say you live on South Side, and that just means you live on the South Side of the river. And um South Side is, you know, pretty big. There's South Side like where the working class neighborhoods are near like Philip Morris and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then you have like South Side really, really poverty stricken trailer parks. And then you have like South Side where I live, which is just directly across the river within the city limits. We have a quarter acre corner lot, totally affordable house that we bought. And yeah, I mean, I'm very lucky, but you know, go across the river, they're awesome old row houses, brick Mm -hmm. houses, um, Oregon Hill. We say, we like to say that they're made out of toothpicks because they're just wooden framed houses, Scott Irish neighborhood. Everybody it's there because everybody used to work at Tredegar Ironworks making, you know, casting cannons for the Civil War, war and cannonballs and whatnot. And those are the roots of the neighborhoods. But yeah, real neat place. And like um, many uh, cities in the United States, actually, let's just say almost all cities in the United States, except maybe like Detroit and other places, the demographic 
has switched where the suburbs are becoming like poverty mm-hmm. uh, stricken and like the wealth is moving back into the urban uh, you know mm-hmm. centers. So Richmond is seeing quite an influx of uh, the paper mills and tobacco warehouses and flour mills becoming unaffordable condos. Um, yeah, it's it's a trip to watch. You know, I'm looking at whole blocks that I used to, you know, be able to break into every abandoned building and now they're just filled with students and and whatnot. Virginia Commonwealth University, which is sort of the financial hub in the Monroe area of, of Richmond, is <clears throat> certainly expanding. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I remember Richmond in the, when I was in school in the in the nineties, the early nineties shit. Um like that Richmond scene was so prominent, you know, with I remember Four Walls Falling. Yeah. And yeah. we did a show with I did a show Four Walls Falling once and um like you know, there was like tour with Lazy Cane, and then before mm-hmm. that was Grip, and yeah, and uh, and this was you know years before Inquisition. We loved to death. JMU is that Harrison? Harrisonburg. Harrisonburg. Yep. Do you ever know Travis Connor? He used to tour with Engine Down. He was a friend of a lot of people. Um, uh, <coughs> yeah. You wait a minute. Him. He was my best friend. He he toured with Avail for years. I used to ride freight trains with him all the time. Oh so, really? Yeah. Just curious. Was he the Was he the one that went into Was it Sleepy Time Trio? Yeah, he would have hung out with those people yeah, too. Yeah. Uh, ben from Sleepy Time was a good friend of mine. Okay. Yeah. We're, I just saw all of them. I just saw them too. We saw at Fest. Yeah, I, I was like, I, I was in North Carolina the week before Fest playing oh, a nice. show, and and they were across the street rehearsing. I had no idea. I was with a May from the group Desarc. And she was like, yeah, those, all those guys are across the street rehearsing. So they came in. I didn't get a chance to see them because I kind of like dipped in the dressing room because I didn't even know that they were there. Mm-hmm. And then they happened to be in the courtyard of the hotel that I was at at the fest. So I got to see all of them again. It was terrific to see them. Ben came to our show and stage dove for the first time ever during our set. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> yeah. Was it a stage ben flop? Uh, my last stage dive was I a stage so. flop. <laughs> It was two of the guys from Sleepy Time staged up during our set. Wow. That's great. Yes. I think here. someone told me about that. I wish I'd seen it's that. It's possible. I wish I'd seen it. I was just covered in sweat, staring yeah. at my shoes or something. Um, I wanted to ask you, you talked about kind of the Civil War, and obviously you know a lot about kind of the history of Virginia. I mean, do you get really into into that stuff, kind of the the Civil War history and the war history and kind of being in that area? I think academically I go through phases. Uh-huh. I'm not like, I mean, I went to... My high school that I went to was one of, you know, among the best public schools in the state of Virginia or the Commonwealth. But um, I, I have gone through a lot of phases. So, yeah, I researched the Civil War probably for a couple of years. <clears throat> I call it homeschooling. You know, my, my schooling ended at high school. I could barely read at that point and uh, sort of became obsessed with picking topics and studying them. And I think because I moved to Richmond, you know, into the city from the suburbs, uh, you know, you kind of lack a history and identity. So the first thing I did when I started picking up books in my early 20s was just study the entire history of Richmond for like two years until I knew what, until I could tell you what happened on every corner of every street. And then that expanded into, you know, Virginia as a whole. Naturally, the Civil War plays such a prominent role in the history of Virginia. And, you know, we say, in, you know, down south, they call us Yankees. Up north, they call us rednecks. We're like right on the cusp. But we always say in Virginia, South Carolina started it and we dealt with it. 
you can't go anywhere without bumping into earthworks. And you can't go anywhere without talking to somebody who's out hunting with a metal detector and finding all kinds of cool stuff. It's you know, bonkers how much stuff you can find. I there's remember going so much. to bull, bull Run when I was in high school for like a report, and there's just it's everywhere. It's not it's not as not as crazy as Gettysburg where you can always find stuff, but it's it's no, you can find stuff anywhere, anywhere. I mean, even on Oregon Hill, we found it. I mean, I find bottles in Oregon Hill. Uh, I was bottle digging the other day in Oregon Hill and found bottles from like the 1870s. Um, um, in Oregon Hill, we found a cannonball in a um, <clears throat> an old well. Uh, we were out by a train yards. A buddy found a Yankee button. All the guys I used to work with who lived in Sandstone, which is the east side. You remember the Peninsula Campaign? So the Yankees come up and the... the the defenses are just set up, but there's all these crazy little ambushes. Like you read about a platoon in Afghanistan that's a hundred person column, you know, then it's thirty thousand people camping with all of their gear. And when you find a journal that says we are seven miles east of Richmond, like a personal account. This is how hunters do it. They're like find an obscure journal that says we were seven miles east of Richmond off of something turnpike which, you know, like has a modern name, like five. And we are ambushed from this angle and we had to desert camp and run. There's 30,000 people who are asleep who get up and start running as fast as they can. There's stuff everywhere. It's endless. Guys that show up to work still muddy from going in the swamps, just pulling out the craziest stuff. Crazy. Sword handles. Mm -hmm. No swords left, but sword handles. Fragments from... All kinds of explosives. I mean, it's just, it's never ending. So when you have that physical and current history that's available to you, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. So, yes, I have studied the Civil War. <laughs> My father is, is a academic, and he's studied it inside and out. So it's one of those nice common bonds that we have we can discuss. But I've moved on since then. And it's not just academic stuff. You know, like when I finish the Civil War, if my mind's numb, I'll read a novel. And then I'll study auto mechanics. <laughs> and then I'll study feminism for six months. And then I'll go back, you know, something lighter. Um, but I haven't read a book in three years. I read three newspapers a day. I'm obsessed with current events. My favorite show is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. If I got on that rapid-fire current event thing at the end, I can get every question right. I'm nuts. <laughs> See, that's, how I, I don't, that's how I deal with Twitter. My Twitter is all news feeds. Yeah. That's all I do is scroll through. And in fact, now it's like, now I just get depressed because for, it'll, for every headline, I'm like, no, I'm just bummed. I feel like I'm not doing anything. <laughs> Actually... I just said 2014 was my year to get better at Twitter. <laughs> I just use it for music. I, I, the only, of course, the only person I followed for, for like the first year was a uh, jaded punk Hulk. Jaded punk Hulk. Uh, it's uh, only like I have like 8,500 Twitter followers. I follow one person, and that's it. He listened to this podcast uh, <laughs> for a fact. Yes. Well, I, I really. Um, I, I really enjoy his humor. Humor, I mean, I really do. Now I follow, I think, 16 people, but um, I really I really enjoy his humor. I think it's amazing. Yeah, he's a great guy. <laughs> it's, really, it's, just, it's so it's nice. Really to, it's so nice to have someone you know, make light of what some of us take so seriously. It's just great to laugh at yourself, you know? And he just, he says 
says things better than most people could. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Definitely. Vanessa said um, an interesting topic to discuss with you might be tie-dye. Hmm. Um, and I know I saw in your last, I was at your show, I think at Asbury Lanes, and I know you have a, a tie-dye shirt mm-hmm. in with your merch. I mean, what's, where did that come from? Um, Cause it's not synonymous with the kind of music that maybe well, people would associate with your scene, I guess. Well, I always joke that I'm a hippie. I mean, cause I kind of am. I mean, chickens, gardening, kumbaya folk music. I mean, it's like, definitely you can lump me into that hippie joke. I also do like the Grateful Dead. Um, well, there's a difference between the dead and, and the dead Grateful heads. Dead. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, I think it started, it, the origin is is a good buddy of mine, one of my best friends in the world. His name is Ken Freeman. Um, he's toured with me for, for years off and on. And he had, at some point on one of the tours years ago, a homemade Avail shirt that he tie-dyed. And he would wear it on the tours. And it was funny. <laughs> and then I think that somewhere along the line, I was just like, I'm going to make a tie-dye shirt. You know, like, and maybe he said, I bet you won't type of thing. <clears throat> and talk about, like, learning things. Like, it's I'm not really good at learning things. It takes me a little while to figure this stuff out. So I bought some blank white T-shirts. Like, I'm set up for this joke. I'm going to do it. I have some off time. So I phenomenal failure the original shirts are just horrible like these tie-dyes that i'm trying to make it took me forever before i figured out like the right way to do it and my ultimate goal was to make pot leaf ones and upside down peace symbol ones right i kind of gave up on that for now once the summer comes around I'll work <laughs> let on me it. know i would buy both of those word yeah so um i ended up just finally making white you know, like getting black print on white t-shirts once I got some confidence up. And I got to tell you, I cannot believe how many people bought these things. They love them. I made like a really limited amount, put them online. and was just like, I made like six of each size. They all sold in 10 minutes. And I was like, well, got to stop this. And I'm not doing it for the commodification of it or the profit because there's so little profit in what I do with like merch anyway. It's just like you make the money to buy more merch to sell. You know, it's like, it's like a never ending cycle. But I'm really good at making tie-dyes now. It's kind of (laughs) unbelievable. Like, I've been getting contacts from, like, tie-dye people. Like, that's what they do. And they're like, dude, your stuff is looking really good. And I finally got it down. And it goes even, it's even farther. We're talking about, wait, wait, don't tell me. Sunday is my day. That's my day that I'm allowed to day drink and I smoke pot, right? So Sunday, I put the headphones in. I clean the chicken coops, I smoke weed, I listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and I make tie-dyes. It's my hustle. My technique of the actual tying, not the dyeing, somebody showed up when I was, like, actually doing the ties. So you tie them. There's a certain, I have a specific fold Mm -hmm. that's just for me. It's a Mm -hmm. fold. Then you rubber band them, and then you got to throw them in water with salt ash and let them set before you can actually put the dye on. And it might have been Ken. It might have been my buddy Robert Cataldo came over, and I got them all sitting out. They look exactly like penises. (laughs) (laughs) 
So there's mm. like a long shaft with a rubber band at the top mm. and then another one at the bottom of the shaft. And then I call it bunching where you like bunch up the bottom and it actually looks like testicles. And the person, I think it was Robert Cataldo. And when he looked at them, like a bunch of them sitting on a table, sticking up, he just started laughing. And I was like, what? And then I went, oh my God, those look like penises. <laughs> so for all y'all who are wearing my um, tie-dye t-shirts or have them hanging on the wall um, for the novelty of them, they originally looked like, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you think you're working through something? Or? I'm totally working through something. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, now I just think it's hilarious. That I, actually, I love it. I just, get, I just laugh when I make one. It just makes it more fun, you know? But, I, you know, like... What's uh, your theme, professional tie-dye company, to Tim Barry? Tim's like, well, you make a cock out of it. <laughs> well, I really should do an instructional video and let that be the, uh, the end point. <laughs> but I got to tell you, like, y'all enjoy them tie-dyes because they are becoming where I had a lot of fun making them. They're in such great demand that it's becoming um, labor intensive. And so I'll probably stop making them. You would I, never I, do like an Andy Warhol, like outsource it to your assistants. No, no, no. I do everything myself. I really just actually do everything from changing my guitar strings to setting up to making tie dyes. I do everything on my own. I don't know why, but I do. So um, but with that said, I, I, I'm probably going to cut off the tie-dye soon and maybe take a break from them because, again, as soon as it becomes a task, yeah. you know, why bother? Uh, has, has music ever felt that way to you or never? No. Uh, the monotony of, of traveling will wear me down. Um, I don't think a lot of people think of music as a job. I can't put it together that way. It my brain just, it, there's a separation in it. Um, although sometimes I feel like if there is a job involved in the music thing, it's doing my own mail order because I run my own online store. That feels like work, getting up in the morning, fulfilling mail order, writing everybody back and saying, hey, I got your order. It's going to be shipped and going to the post office. And that kind of feels like work, you know. And then airplane travel to me feels like a day of work because it's so weird you're like in a prozac capsule with wings you know there's nothing normal about the air or the people or the attitudes and sometimes i feel like i'm going to work when i'm getting dropped off at the airport although sitting on an airplane and reading crappy newspapers isn't really a job but i don't think of music as a job how many days a year do you tour not not as much as people think um People always say, he's always on the road. I'm not always on the road. I got home in November, and then I was, so I was home for two and a half months recently after six months of on and off touring. I spend more time at home than people think. But then I get, you know, I get itchy feet. You know, I just, I'll go sleep at the river for a while just to get away. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds healthy. Like you want to take off and come back and... I bought a canoe for a hundred bucks from a neighbor. I'll take that out and sleep on an island or something. It's great. And in Virginia, you can do that. Yeah, you can. Uh, technically, you're not supposed to, like in the city, but who cares? <laughs> do you feel like a lot of kinship with with guys like Chuck, who sort of came up in in the same kind of world as you, and then are kind of me aside from sonically what you're doing, kind of like embodying kind of the same spirit? 
Or is that cool to see? Or I consider Chuck Reagan to be one of my greatest road brothers, one of my best friends in the world. So he's a great person to have brought up. Um, I feel an intense connection with Chuck. He is one of the most inspiring and beautiful people I've ever met in my life. He's proactive. He's forward-thinking. He sees very little wrong. And uh, he's a motivator for a lot of people. Yes, beyond like the music stuff, yes. When I'm out on the river, it's Chuck that I send a text picture to and say, hey, man, just thinking about you. And he'll be like, no crap. And he'll send back a picture of him fly fishing. Can doing you, the same can thing you copy right me on those convos? <laughs> no. I want to get in that. <laughs> That's private stuff. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, you know, Chuck is a great example. I have other peers, you know, that, that play music, and that's all they do. That's all they do, and those are some of the most successful people that I know. Like, they don't have the other hobbies. Their music is their hobby. Listening to other people's music, collecting it, that's all they do. And those are the people who just like rise and rise and rise. Where like I do so much different stuff. The music is a major priority, but I'm never going to be that popular. I'm also not that accessible and not as good as a lot of my peers. But, um, but yes, I feel like a real connection. And there's a lot of other people in the same way that I feel that connection with. Um, and it's not just, you know, you know, like Jenny Owen Youngs, who lives here in New York City. She's another one. Like, I just love her music, but it's just like her as a person, what she's into. Like, I'm just, I feel, again, like I go back to the lucky thing. I just feel lucky to be surrounded by so many interesting people. But where Jenny doesn't go fly fishing like Chuck in the morning or go hunting or something like that, you know, like we have other things that we connect on. She's one of the best people ever. Who's that? <laughs> Jenny, Jenny Owen Young. Yeah, I talked oh, to her I yesterday. She is. Yeah, we were. It's great. We were texting yesterday as well. We had a heck of a day yesterday. Um, well, today is Thursday. Today's yeah Thursday, and we uh, played Tuesday night in Pittsburgh, and they had a mega storm. It took us eighteen or nineteen hours to get here. So I was oh. trying to connect. Yesterday is an off day, like a travel day. So I was really excited to connect with some people in New York and and holler at Jenny and some other people. But we got in so late last night. I was just. I just text hello. Yeah, that's I'm chilling. <laughs> I'm just gonna sit in the bus. Everybody got a hotel, but I just stayed in the bus and had a couple beers and read. Had, had you had you done a lot of bus touring before, or is this? I've toured in buses yeah. a lot. Yeah, I have a 2004 Chevy Astro van. It's a little work van, size of a minivan, and that's what I tour in. Um, but. Uh, I'm easy in the big picture for like rock bands that tour on buses because um, I'm by myself, no gear except merch and a guitar and a little duffel bag in my backpack. That's all I have. So when I get offers to go on these big tours, they're often bundled with we want you come in a bus because it's generally old friends. We all want to hang out anyway. So I get this tremendous relief of like not having to worry about the point A to point B every day. Um, out and I just get to travel on the buses. Bus tours are set up different than the tours I go on to. They're based on the buses driving overnight and it's almost impossible to to follow those tours in another vehicle. And your schedule becomes like get off a stage, um, go to sleep as soon as possible, get up at 4 or 5 a.m. Mm. and start driving because, um, again, the band goes to sleep, the driver get, wakes up, drives overnight for as long as it needs to go so i feel real lucky to be on that but yeah i've avail always used to tour in buses in europe 
we would share buses. It would be like Bouncing Souls of Ale in one bus or like another next door would be like Snapcase and Avail on a bus and Lagwagon Avail on a bus, like that kind of thing. Um, in the United States, Avail never toured in a bus, never gotten buses ever. But since I've been doing this music for the last 10 years, I've toured in buses multiple times. And the longest run in the United States would have been the 2008 Revival Tour, um, which Ben Nichols, me, Chuck Reagan, a lot of other people, Laura, Laura Jane Grace came on it for a little bit, and Austin Lucas, and all kinds of people, but that was about six weeks in a bus. I love it. They're yeah. so expensive. Yes, yeah. I was sitting in the bus last night expensive. by myself, and I was make-believing. <laughs> <laughs> don't often make believe but i was make believing that i was i was like this is my bus because <laughs> it's like everybody's in the hotel or at home right this is my bus i was like that's how you turn a generator off that's how you turn a shore power off this is my bus like walking around this is my bus this is what willie nelson does he grabs an apple hollows it out opens a beer and sits on his bus. <laughs> <laughs> and then I woke up and it wasn't my bus anymore. <laughs> that was Tim Barry from Virginia. Which one? Which one? <laughs> which one? <There's laughs> northern and Southern. <laughs> which one's on top? West. Northern is on top. Vastly different <laughs> from the South. If you, all you got to do is you get past, mm. um, See, the dividing line is probably Lynchburg. So that would be where it... I, f- I always feel like anything like south of Cleveland is the south. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> or Staten Island. Or Staten Island. Well, Maryland's technically the south because it's south of the Mason-Dixon line. So around Delaware start. Delaware. Delaware. Those, those states are the ones I'm fuzzy on. But Tim Barry, you know, he talks about going in... Uh, you know, hunting for Civil War artifacts, it's the real deal. Like, they're everywhere. Still? You think? Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah, all over the place. The artifacts or the hunters? The hunters are still there. Oh, yeah. They're I've hiding. They don't know the war's over, so they're mm-hmm. very confused. How do you they're feel? Still dressed. How do you feel about um, Confederate, Confederacy, Confederate <laughs> pride? Confederate pride? Yeah. I think it's ridiculous. I know enough people with, you know, they, they'll, they'll have the flag and they'll, they'll say, um, what, what's the word? History, not hatred, you know, or um, culture, not hatred, you know, the flag. And if you look at when they, when there was the secession, it talks about, you know, the right of secession, but the right of secession was so that we could keep this one specific law of holding on to slavery. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of you out there, like my mother, who call it the war of northern aggression, are going to argue with me on this point left and right. But I think history might very well show how it all played out. It was the, for the right, they'll say the war started as the right of secession, but people wanted to secede because they wanted to keep the slaves. That's where it ended. And you don't have a microphone, so you don't get to say anything. Yes. <laughs> so write us at facebook.com slash going off track and argue the hell with me if you would <laughs> or like. Agree with, or agree with you. Yes. Not everyone's against you. you, man. I don't know. Sometimes it feels that way, man. Sometimes I just feel like I live in my own little let, box. Let Stephen know that there are other other people like him that are anti-slavery. Yeah, there are other people <laughs> <laughs> who were born in Charlotte in the seventies. We know you're out there. Who have that? Feeling. Find us on Facebook, going off track. Let us know on Twitter. 
going off track. And I'm talking about Dukes of Hazard fans. I mean, the flag was on the roof of the car, and we watched the show as if nothing happened. I mean, I think we're all complicit here. We yep. are. Um. <laughs> what else? Oh, you want to give money to us? Go to goingofftrack.com. Hit donate. If you want to follow us on Twitter, go to uh, at goingofftrack. If you want to go to our Tumblr, you could make one for us. That would be awesome. Make one for us if you want a shirt. Make a cool one and we'll sell it. We'll if you totally want to stalk us because you're a crazy redneck and you don't agree, we live yeah. in San Diego, California. I'm from Charlotte. I'm a redneck. And shit, aren't you too? Where the fuck are you from? Yeah, I'm... I am from redneck stock, though. I'm yeah. from the suburbs of a rednecky state. I feel like I feel like Ohio, Southern Ohio has some has some redneck. So if you're Knock born in the South and you're <laughs> Jewish, and I mean this, like, are you? Can you be? Well, you know, I guess redneck doesn't have to be Southern. I guess you can be rednecky. Yeah, I think else. you can be rednecky and not yeah. necessarily be Southern. Although when my mom got engaged to my dad, who's from Philly. Uh, her grandmother said, couldn't you have just found a good old boy? Like, that that happened. Listen next week when our guest will be Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> <laughs> He's, I mean, if we, I would talk to him. Oh, I would 100% talk to him. I think he'd be fast. He's calling. All right, we got to go get that. 